welcome to part two of this year's Whiskeyumentary about the secondary market on the Neat Glass-sponsored Whiskey Tangent Podcast. I'm Scott. I'm Ed. And in this episode, we'll be diving deeper into the fray with several guest interviews to discuss not only the secondary market's causes and types, but also its wide-ranging ramifications on the primary market, focusing specifically on the main driver of this entire sad state of affairs, scarcity, all of which contribute to the reasons behind why we can't get the whiskeys we want. But before we get to all that, Ed's here to remind us what we got up to in the last episode with a brief recap of part one. Right. So what we did is we first gave a uh, overview of what the three-tier system is, which is basically producers are required to sell it to distributors who are then allowed to sell it to retailers who then are allowed to sell it to us. And it varies from state to state, but that's the general formula that is practiced in most occasions. Sometimes states like Pennsylvania is involved by controlling the distribution and retail end. The average pricing markups that you should be aware of, the producers will sell it to distributors. The distributors are going to mark that up 25 to 30% for the retail end, and then they're going to mark it up 25 to 30% for the consumers. At least that's how it's supposed to work, Scott. <laughs> um, the reason it doesn't work that way is why we're having this whiskumentary to begin with. Right. Because with the invented the internet and social groups on there like Facebook and Reddit. We've seen a mechanism that can overhype certain brands and drive prices up by making them highly sought after, which has led to internet pricing of products going through the roof. And so many, I don't know if you would call them unscrupulous, Mm. morally flexible Mm. uh, liquor store owners particularly will see a bottle that they have after marking it up 30%, sitting at $65 or $80, and they see it going on the internet for 300 and they go, I'm going to charge 300 myself. Why should they get the money? Mm -hmm. I'm going to make a couple extra dollars. And we talked about how that can have a negative impact on the store's relationship with its consistent customers and its overall image in the whiskey industry. Right. And then how to combat that by just drinking something else. Right. We, we talked about finding alternatives for the Kentucky Owl. Not, this is not beating up on Kentucky Owl, but you know the cheapest one I've ever seen is $125. Mm. Then you know it's not always affordable for the average person. So we found a very, uh, I think, nice expression from Bellmead, yeah. Bellmead Reserve. Not cheap, let's call it $70 for now, but manufactured, produced, and handled very similar to the Kentucky Owl. And um, I actually had Kentucky Owl confiscated right after I did that. Yeah, so at I the did, lounge. And uh, I have to to tell you, Kentucky Owl is not a bad whiskey, but I thought that the Bellmead held up very well, and I think I might pick that over it if I had to choose, Scott. Yeah, yeah. So not only is it a good alternative, it might be a good permanent alternative. Right. Yeah. And this is understanding that some people, their money spends differently than our money. Mm. You know, if $300 to you is $30, if you're a rich person, if you're a millionaire and-, and Swell. And, yeah, if you're, if you're swell <laughs> and you can like, you know, you have your own silverware. No, but if you have, <laughs> you know, if you're well off and you just don't care that you're overpaying, then that's fine. But I really like to believe that's a small percentage of the people out there drinking whiskey. I have to believe that most of you care if you can get a $60 bottle that's as good as the $300 bottle that they're trying to get you to buy. Yeah. Uh, wrapped up in hype that you know rings that bell that we have to have it today limited right. release we saw that the other day right scott what did we see it was um remember i was deciding whether to buy it they're like well, look you should buy it it's a limited release oh, well, after right. we laughed how they were pressuring me with their marketing yeah that, that's right and we ended up not buying it which one was oh, it? the rendezvous right rendezvous right yeah right. yeah yeah it's so funny um and that kind of leads into the scarcity the topic that we're focusing on in this part though there's many topics and we'll talk about them in just a bit But I just wanted to give an overview of sort of the marketing and economic perspective of what scarcity actually is. Right. So I did a um, little essay called Scarcity and the Fear of Missing Out. 
So scarcity occurs when the demand for a resource exceeds its supply and its current use is unsustainable. Scarcity is usually talked about in terms of non-renewable resources such as petroleum products that power our vehicles and rare earth elements that power our consumer electronics. But it can also occur with renewable resources like the problem of overfishing and irresponsible water usage which are consumed faster than they're able to be replaced. But there's also something called perceived scarcity which is something that the marketing industry has been using for decades to drive artificial demand for a wide range of consumer products check in here for toilet paper during the pandemic <laughs> yes <laughs> remember that everybody yeah. that when toilet paper became scarce because for some reason everyone had to buy 50 rolls at the same time and <laughs> and then we wondered why there was a panic like what production system is in place to sustain every american going out on the same day mm-hmm. and purchasing 36 to 50 rolls of toilet paper exactly. there is no supply chain in the world that can handle that we had no choice but to create scarcity and that led to a panic of further hoarding of toilet paper yeah and that's a great recent example of how artificial scarcity can be put into place yeah yeah i bought a bidet because of it (laughs) one of the best things i ever bought by the way so feminine when you say bidet it's a tiny shower for your butt it's the best thing ever I, well, I can see that. <laughs> All right, so take the De Beers monopoly over worldwide diamond mining and their cynical marketing of engagement rings that sets the price in their advertising to a number of a man's paychecks. Before the 1930s, engagement rings weren't really a thing, but because De Beers was able to effectively manufacture the perception that diamonds were rare, that rings were coveted, and that marriages were incomplete without them, they played upon the desires of men and women alike to the tune of what is now a $72 billion business. Now, luxury goods like diamonds and art, cars and wine are often seen as a special case in this regard, priced higher purposely for a richer clientele to make them even more alluring. But a resource doesn't have to be luxurious for the perception of scarcity to work its magic. There was a famous study published in 1975 in which subjects were offered cookies in one of two jars. The first jar was filled to the top with cookies, while the second jar contained only two. As it turned out, the subjects preferred the cookies from the second jar, even though the cookies in both jars were identical. The conclusion, when something is rare, it's more appealing. So I would think that they might be stale. And I would wonder why there's two left. How come they didn't finish it in that jar? Maybe there's something wrong with it. Maybe them. there's something wrong. It wouldn't have worked on me. Right. I would have been like, oh, I want the brand new fresh Yeah, it jar. wouldn't have worked on me either. I want the fresh jar that isn't open yet, yeah. evidently. <laughs> uh, but why, when something is rare, is it more appealing? Some mm. of it is because humans are social creatures and want to do what others are doing. And more specifically, it comes in the form of the psychological phenomenon known as the fear of missing out, or as you may know it, FOMO, which is defined as the persistent worry that others are having gratifying experiences while you are not. It's basically the contrapositive to the name of this episode, Why We Want What We Can't Get. To illustrate this more clearly, another study published in the Journal of Experimental Social Psychology in 2009, a group of women were shown a picture of a man with the features that they had previously described as attractive. Half of the women were told that the man was single. The other half were told that he was in a committed relationship. The results, 59% of the women in the single man group said they they would be interested in pursuing him. But that number jumped to 90% in the group of women told that he was taken. Mm. So what does all this have to do with whiskey? Well, when whiskey became more in demand, there were only a few major distillers at the time, and they were blindsided by the surging popularity. And although whiskey is a renewable resource, as you all know, it takes years to be replenished. Thus, in the early 2010s, whiskey became scarce, and when supply is low and demand is high, Economics 101 states that prices 
prices go up, which is what we talked about in part one. But there's actually more nuance to it than just simple supply versus demand. There are several other factors that contribute. And we've interviewed three members of the three-tier system to find out what those are. Yes. So we interviewed a bar manager, Mm -hmm. the owner of a liquor store, and a person who works for a major nationwide distributor who also has ties previously in his career to a producer. Right. So Anders, our master mixologist, who's a friend of the podcast, he came on and talked on many topics. Um, Billy from uh, Benash Liquors in Cherry Hill, our favorite whiskey spot, you yeah. know, a honey hole, if you will. Mm-hmm. And then we uh, we talked to Matt, who is a person who works in the distribution side, the second tier, if you will, of the three-tier system, but mm-hmm. he's also originally worked for the first tier. Yeah. So he was able to give us some perspectives on both of those tiers, which I found him to be a very valuable asset. So Anders, Billy, and Matt will be coming in and out with their thoughts. We've spoken to them already on the topics, and they had a lot to say. Yeah. So the first topic that we're going to tackle on this was we asked them, each of them how the secondary market affected uh, the bars the liquor stores and the producers yeah and the overall thing i just talked about how it was great to have educated customers people who knew whiskey Mm. he loves talking whiskey with people as opposed to people who he has to train from the ground up but problem with that if some people have just a little bit of knowledge it can be dangerous When we first opened up the lounge, it was a really good thing. And I think having more educated consumers that know what they like, and I don't have to be like, hey, have you had whiskey before? Great thing. And I love that. On the other hand, I find it wildly frustrating and counterintuitive that because of like the popularity of like Facebook and whiskey groups, which obviously is like driven up the price as well. In addition to scarcity due to one, people buying and consuming more whiskey, people seeking out things that have like a really solid reputation or solid marketing and there being less production, which I feel like we're going to feel a lot more this year in particular. That creates a really difficult situation for me operating a business. It's really frustrating when I have somebody walk in who's never been to my bar before and they go like, hey, do you have any Pappy 23? And I'm like, no, but I have 250 other things right now. That screams to me, the culture a little bit is just like taterish where you just want to flex and spend some money rather than enjoy something that you might like. All right, well, I don't know if you know what you are ordering. I think you just want to order it to order it. I'd rather cater to people who, you know, love something rather than just to make money. You know, people who are trolling the internet, they see a couple of names that, that they feel defines the pinnacle of whiskey. And then if you don't have it, like your place is subpar and it's hysterical to us because he could put you into a number of drinks that you would enjoy. First of all, he could make you a mix of cocktails. Oh, oh yeah. Or he can put you into spirits, uh, whiskeys that you've never had that you would absolutely enjoy. And that's kind of a much more fun journey to be on than just kind of trolling the top of the Reddit page. Sure, so yeah. I mean, basically he does what we uh, have talked about, replacements for whiskeys you can't get uh the cool thing i thought anders said was the bars are at the bottom of the three tiers i'm not sitting at the top of the three-tiered system i'm sitting at the bottom of it at least in my perspective but how i kind of have come to understand it the way all of the arms kind of work are in a bit of a priority if you go on a disney cruise and you know that they're going to have like a bottle of happy 23 and that's going to be part of what's offered there i'm going to assume that disney's going to get their cut first After that, you're going to have all of your 
larger premium things. If there's like a casino in Macau that needs to have Weller, they're probably going to have Weller. And then that's going to kind of move down the chain from like larger premium retail things to chain restaurants and things like that, kind of going all the way down to the little fish. And like, um, I have no qualms with being one of those like little fish because we have something kind of unique that we're offering. But on the other hand, there is far more scarcity, far more demand, which impacts bars and restaurants very differently than it does retail. So that's how it affects Anders. Um, what Billy said was he doesn't look at the secondary market. Yeah. He says honestly that he does not let that factor into his pricing. You know, I try not to pay that much attention to it, in part because regardless of what something goes for on the secondary, I don't want to be that guy like, oh, well, it's selling for $500 on the secondary, so I can charge $400 for this $50 bottle. It's like, no, I mean, I'd like to hope that customers aren't just taking bottles and flipping them. But at the same time, Weller single barrel goes for some insane amount. It's not a good bottle. I mean, it's, I, I shouldn't say it's not a good bottle, but I mean, who in their right mind is paying eight, $900 for Weller single barrel? I mean, it's not that. It just isn't. I actually know someone and they said they would trade me a 2020 George T. Stag for my bottle of Weller single barrel. I'm like, listen, I would do that. I have no qualms with you taking the Weller single barrel you bought from us and trading it for, you know, a 2020 George D. Stag. Like in that sense, like you're almost buying it from us. So, you know, more power to you. And so he knows it's out there. He understands what's going on. But it does, of course, drive the clientele, right? Yeah. So I kind of put him on the spot and I asked him, like, isn't it tempting to price things according to the secondary market? Oh, yeah. I hear it more from customers and okay. sometimes some other salesmen. But I mean, you know, the stores are known that will be like, oh, I can't believe I just saw this on the shelf there for $500. Like, who, who do you think is going to buy that? And again, you know, as a retailer, I can't really fault anyone for what they're doing. They just have a different business model. Some people are like, I'm going to get every last dollar I can. I have more of a long-term view trying to build out the customer base rather than just, you know, take that one shot. And he also talked about barrel picks because they do several, as we talked about last time, and as a way to combat the secondary market, which wasn't really what we were thinking was happening, but it gives alternatives for people to buy the things that they can't get. Right. And we're going to talk more about that for when it comes to, you know, fighting the allocation. Well, yeah. So then Matt, the distributor of the group, and I asked him about producers too, because I know he worked as a producer and I know his distributor has direct content with over 5,000 brands. So yeah, yeah. They work very closely. I, I said, together. do uh, producers have a problem with hyped brands? Like, like for example, being that Weller's foolproof might be $300. Uh, well, I would say, you know, definitely for a supplier, any hype, especially on social media nowadays, hey, they're taking full advantage of that. So they probably have no problem about it, um, especially if it's going to get their brand name out there. I thought that was very interesting about that. And Matt told us that it's not uniform. Some states are awash in whiskeys that we find scarce, you know? Right. So the second uh, set of questions that we asked them were about the pandemic, because the pandemic is a sort of scarcity of itself. It's right. a scarcity of, uh, of people, um, basically in people. people uh, wait, 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 people in people? No, I, I messed what that is, up. What is, whoa, I don't think that's what you meant to say. <laughs> I mean, that's, that, that, that's more than a pandemic. That's a... It's my weekend. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the the effect on bars, liquor stores, and distributors again, uh, the pandemic, and what happened. And what a different interview we had. Yeah. I mean, there's a little bit of a melancholiness to Anders because it, it's been such a rough eighteen months for the bars. 
we ended up going from having a staff of 24 to about a staff of six initially we're only doing like takeout as business and that kind of like ramped up over the course of months where we were able to sell bottles to go or like packaged cocktails and things like that but we were on like really limited business and obviously we're in the middle of pandemic we have to cope how we can so in addition to that our sales dipped down to 30 percent of what they were for a while which is insane but somehow we made it work and you know ended up surviving it was a really bizarre time and the echo effect of that, which I don't think many people thought of, was for products that are allocated based on previous sales mm. as a reward. Mm-hmm. Well, when you're not open for six to eight months, right, and people aren't coming out, you're not able to hit those benchmarks. So, yeah. So he didn't receive his normal allocation, even though he's been a good customer for five, six years before the pandemic, really repping these brands properly. They're like, well, you know, what have you done by me lately? <laughs> <laughs> and so he was kind of bummed down. And then so the liquor store started getting priority, even though they're both open now. Billy was like completely different. Like, yeah, we killed it. He's like, <laughs> yeah. he's like we couldn't sell stuff fast enough. Mm-hmm. Like um, Anders even talking about how liquor stores were closing down because they didn't have product, especially the ones near the border with Pennsylvania because yeah. people were coming over there because we opened up before they did the liquor stores. Yep. It was almost like a combat zone. They, some closed down because the crowd was just dangerous. They had like, it was a pandemic and they had shoulder to shoulder people in their yeah, store. Yeah. But yeah, so everybody who couldn't go to concerts or plays or the zoo just sat home and drank. Yes, and yeah. Aguilar knows Scott and I did. Whew, boy, did we. But Matt had an interesting perspective on the pandemic. He said, yes, we moved boatloads of product to the liquor stores. But he said that their highest margin is with restaurants and bars. Yeah. Overall, it really had an impact. The restaurants, you know, the bars, the nightclubs, uh, you saw Broadway shut down. So really had an impact on our on-premise. And you think about it coming from a supplier or distributor perspective, on-premise is where we make our highest margin, right? They buy the product for a higher price than our liquor store because they're not buying as much quantity. So that was hard to make up on a revenue P&L perspective. But if we looked at a case-by-case, a volume basis, I would say the number of cases that we lost in the on-premise were made up in the retail stores where people were, they they didn't stop drinking, they kept drinking. I thought the coolest thing that uh, he said was about the three-tier laws being challenged by the pandemic. Yes. Three-tier laws, we're definitely feeling them being more challenged than before. And, you know, just recently in New York, they have now legalized completely going forward is the to-go drinks in the on-premise, allowing restaurants to sell drinks to go as if they were a liquor store. And now, you know, the liquor stores are looking at that and being like, wait a minute, that's my market share you're taking from me. <laughs> so those laws are changing. You see it in a lot of other states um, where, you know, a lot of challenges being can um, we ship products, especially on the, you know, the online apps, Drizzly to Minibar, the wines coming across the borders. Is that allowed? Should that be allowed? So, you know, as these laws of three tier are being challenged more and more, and if there's any loopholes found, it starts breaking, you know, the egg of it, because if it does change, if there's a law that changes, we have to react pretty quickly. I mean, we saw that in New Jersey, you know, Anders spearheaded that in the local area with selling pre-made cocktails right. to take home, yeah, yeah, which is illegal until the pandemic came. Yeah. You weren't allowed to, let me get a cheeseburger and an old-fashioned. 
for the road right you were in a mason jar right and and in a way that kind of stepped on the toes of the liquor stores because they had 100 percent the ability to sell pre-made cocktails and stuff in the past Mm -hmm. and the cocktail ingredients right yeah so it was a little bit of infringement on them but trust me the the year that they had i think they absorbed it pretty well (laughs) yeah so the third and uh, likely largest, possibly, because uh, it's actually two combined into one, were the effects of allocation and special releases on, of course, the, the three tiers, but specifically as it uh, generates uh, artificial demand. Right. So start with the bars. We already mentioned Anders was kind of screwed on allocation because he wasn't able to hit his numbers on sales because they were closed. Yeah. That's nobody's fault. I mean, he's not to blame for that, but he sold 60% less than he did in the same time last year. Mm-hmm. So the distributor doesn't give him, you know, any, any, you don't get a cookie, right? You don't get a cookie for that. It really defined 2020 and 2021 for us. I think 2022 is going to be more defined by lack of staffing and the first tier of the system in terms of production. Personally, that's the insight that I'm kind of getting as I'm struggling to get things like Elijah Craig and Jameson because they have shortages now. But I don't know how the system can recover from it when the water is just found like a lower level to kind of settle at where it's like, all right, well, how do we drum up more business and sell more fireball to get like allocations of pappy and still kind of keep doing what we're doing over in the lounge like how does i don't know how you recover from that you know what can you do because you know if i was in their position i would probably do the same thing right like during the pandemic i'm going to shift my energy towards the people who can sell my product which was the liquor stores yeah and now after they've kind of come through and and saved my year by selling everything for me I'm, i'm going to want to reward them with what they deserve from their sales yeah but at the same token, you have to look at where else is your bread buttered, and that would be the bars and the liquor stores as well. Right, because as people go back to bars, they're going to spend less at the liquor store and more at the bar. So things will eventually shift, but like right now, um, they're kind of getting screwed over. Right. There's definitely a, a deep echo effect. Um, definitely. And I, I mean, I've been in the lounge, and people have been, I think, unfairly frustrated when things haven't been available to them. And I'm like, somehow they think that maybe the local isn't doing all they can to get <laughs> bottles. Like, yeah. I think that if Andres would want to pull his hair out if he heard people talking. <laughs> like, he have no idea how much he hustles yeah. trying to get bottles that he deserves. Because remember, there's a whole thing before the pandemic, right? I mean, allocation of special reserves has existed before. I don't know. I feel like they don't impact the bar as much as liquor stores. What do you think? Um, I would agree. I think it's much more on the liquor store end. Billy mentioned the special releases and multiple batches per year. That's driving a lot of the secondary market. So I always like barrel bourbon because batch seven was way different than batch four. And I think it's interesting now that you see things like Booker's, like George T. Stagg, the Elijah Craig barrel proof, the Larsen barrel proof. So now it's like, oh, well, did you get the A1 or did you get the B5 or did you get the C? So now I need to get all three releases of Elijah Craig. I need to get all four releases of Booker's this year. I need to get all three releases of Larsen. I need to get, you know, all three releases of Stagg Jr. that comes out this year. So in the old days, part of your job as a blender and master distiller was to get it so that it tasted the same from batch to batch to batch. And now it's almost like a positive to have it be different from batch to batch to batch. And it actually drives that allocated market. People are like, oh, I need to get all of these. 
I remember when the uh, Larceny and Browproof won, that was a particular, what, A174, whatever the winning one was, people wanted that one, not the B, right. B like 563 or whatever. I mean, I'm making these numbers up. But, you know, Billy was saying like, geez, I have to now not just worry about getting bookers for the year, but I have to make sure I space out my allocation to, to get some of all of the allocations to have all the different expressions of the expression. Mm-hmm. So that's crazy. Yeah. And so each of those bookers becomes a new separate allocation. And once again, Again, increasing scarcity yeah and the fact that you just can't buy any booker now i need all four if i want to be a cool booker fan you mm-hmm. know what i mean because mm-hmm. someone's like oh you don't have the c115 oh well that's a shame i do that was really the best one that was that was, <laughs> that was just fire and cherries to me it's a shame you know oh, you never tried it oh you should have tried it. Oh. so it's like even going out and buying the bookers now you still feel like you're not the cool kid at the party you know you still like you got last year's air jordan's on it's very stressful like, no, I'm stress, i was just thinking about it. I and, and i really feel like i definitely have at times got myself wrapped up in the energy that surrounds some of these products like i hate thinking that i'm that i'm going to miss something right you know? the fear of missing out yeah i mean yeah. i'm definitely part of that i just have filters on me that stop me from doing stupid things right. in the pursuit of these things like yeah i'm like oh my god i'm gonna get a bookers it's 152 oh, i don't want bookers anymore and i think the problem is most people have some limits but not everybody has the same limits yeah and some people have no limits and right. you know that presents a problem uh, to, to go back to the barrel picks real quick yeah. uh, in terms of the allocations and special releases it's a way to get around allocations because you can go out to a distillery direct i mean knob creek single barrel and you can't buy anymore mm-hmm. so you just have to get a barrel of it jack single barrels now really hard to get if i can i'll just buy a whole barrel that way, at least I'll have it. So there's bottles like that, you know, things like Wilderness Trail that you can't get. So you just get the barrels just as a way of regular goods almost sometimes. And then the other one I did that for a while back was actually the Journeyman Cursives Whips and Whiskey. Because mm-hmm. after that was like Murray's number three whiskey of the year or something. So all of a sudden we couldn't get Cursives Whips and Whiskey right. anymore. I'm like, can I get a barrel of it? And I'm like, yeah, we can get you a barrel of it. It's like, all right, I might as well just do that. Right. Whereas in the bars, the problem that Anders was saying is that even if he did it because he did the Whistle Pig 10, it's not really necessarily going to help him in terms of what he gets for buying right. all Whistle Pig. Yeah, he did a barrel Whistle Pig. It didn't get him any more of the Boss Hog or anything like that. Right. And so right. Um, from Matt's point of view, he says that the producers do sit down and figure out based on previous sales and they have consulting groups. They do like surveys and examine consumer trends and decide where they're going to send their product. The biggest impact to allocations and how it's done is really based on the state. The state the liquor boards really identify, you know, what you can do and what you can't do when it comes to allocations. But it depends, like in New York, sometimes it's first come, first serve, right? So as soon as that item is available, either on our e-commerce or in front of a sales consultant, whoever's the first retailer or first on-premise restaurant taking that order will get that order. Sometimes a certain percentage of the allocation is looked at prior sales last year. So if there's five liquor stores that bought heavy on an allocated item last year, they may get the initial first allocations. And then there's a percentage left over for, again, that first come, first serve. At the end of the day, it comes down to the supplier. Wherever they want to allocate their brand or their product, what states, what markets, that's where it's going to go. 
And a lot of things go into that, whether it's based on how easy the three-tier laws are of that state to deal with, mm-hmm. based on how far away that state is, shipping costs, right. and the distribution that way, based on whether it's a uh, no-good rotten Yankee state or a good old boy Southern state. <laughs> I mean, that that's true. And Matt said, yes, it is a real thing. Sometimes they, you know, they take care. <laughs> he did. He sort of laughed at that <laughs> and was like, oh, shit, is that real? <laughs> yeah, because I said it. I was like, if you're a no-good Yankee state, he's like, oh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's a thing. Like, it definitely is a thing. South Carolina is going to get more weller than we are and yeah, stuff like that so that's for sure i remember the first place i ever had larceny barrel proof was in florida yeah. so right and then it took me another uh, 10 months to find it in, in jersey one bottle it's all they've ever seen in the wild in new jersey one bottle right so there we go so the allocation and the special releases we asked them if they felt that it created a false scarcity or just scarcity in general and it does yeah, every like three to six months, I'll see that there's a display in one liquor store in Philadelphia. And I'm like, I'm already at work. And it's like, even that I'm like driving over state lines in order to pick up a bottle of whiskey or at once in a blue moon, I'll get like a notification from whiskey searcher or something like that, where I'm just like, oh, there's a, um, there's a store in Persephone that has like a CYPB at a reasonable rate. It's a very regional demand. And like my dad just moved to Ohio and you bet your ass on the way over there. I'm going to hit up as many liquor stores as I can. When Few came out with the Allison Chains mm-hmm. uh, whiskey, yeah, it was seven hundred fifty dollars or nine hundred dollars, something like that. That's automatically scarce, right? Yeah, you know, we tasted it with the owner, Paul. He laughed. He goes, "Yeah, I think these are like seven hundred dollars on the internet if any of them are still around." Right. And he's laughing at how expensive his bottle got to. But by releasing only nine hundred, if it is good and catches fire, then that bottle is going to be, you know, it's a big country. I, yeah, I remember talking to Nico about the uh, Grayson's Texas Bourbon and right. how they had a limited release, of course because they blended a bunch of stuff from uh, Texas distilleries. And that he said, you can't get it anymore. It was all sold out, and yeah. it was going for like double, triple the price on the secondary market. Correct. And he just kind of shrugged. He said, yeah, that's just the business. So the last topic that we have to talk about, and we'll just talk about this briefly because when we were researching it, kind of learned that it's much more far-reaching than we thought, but also more exclusive. So those are the whiskey auctions and investing. Yeah, we thought maybe that this was driving the price on the shelf. You know, buying a $40,000 bottle of 1972 Japanese whiskey is not going to affect why Blanton's is rare right, and costing right. $99 when it should be $55. Right. right. We consider these uh, extensions of the secondary market, but they have little connection to the primary market where it affects consumers. So we felt that it sits by itself the way you would buy and sell old cars or right. rare baseball cards or yeah. memorabilia. Stamps or yeah, anything. So, anything. so yeah. not that these people might not enjoy whiskey, but these are not made for drinking. You know, if you have like a pre-prohibition 1918, you know, Brown Foreman, whoever was around back then mm. and you have them for auction for 15 grand that's completely different yeah. they're not connected in any way really except for a company that billy indicated is very much aware of what their bottles go for as they age and as they hit the secondary market so i will say go more to the scotch side mccallan they are very aware of what their bottles go for they're very aware that people will buy them as investments and they will raise accordingly because basically if their bottles aren't going up 10% a year, that's actually what that model is. Like, like if you want to buy our bottle and sit it down, you should get a 10% rate of return on your investment. And they will factor that in to how they price it on the shelf every year. Other companies don't. Other companies 
are like, I don't care if our bottle's going for $900, we're still going to sell for $100. I mean, Buffalo Trace, even though there's a lot of things I don't like about how they do their allocations and so forth, but they obviously could charge way more than they do. You know, they don't. It's the stores that are charging way more than they should. And we just asked them if they personally would do auctions or investing. And basically, not really. They were really interested in it. No, Andrew said that. First of all, I think he thought we're asking, like, would you go buying stuff at an auction to sell at the bar? And that's illegal. Right. And he's like, no. <laughs> and he's goes, like, well, no. Never, never do that. It's illegal. <laughs> Poor himself. Maybe. I mean, he might. If he, investing, maybe. But like yeah. auctions, you know, yeah. it, it's kind of too rich for our blood. Billy was like, no, nah, doesn't have any interest in that at all. Yeah. And Matt was like, nah, not with three kids. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's what I, I was saying about where it's sort of out of our reach. We're not going to pay $40,000 for a Macallan. Yeah. You're going to do that? No, I was watching Pawn Stars. You don't even like Scotch. I was watching Pawn Stars and somebody brought in a page from the Gutenberg Bible that was worth 60 grand. I'm like, who the <laughs> hell is going to buy one God. page for $60,000? Who has that type of money? Like, that's a very small group of people and it certainly isn't me. Yeah. So auctions and investing, you know, you can go deeper with like NFTs and the fraud that's in the marketplace there. But even though they are really interesting subjects, they ended up being outside of the scope of this whiskumentary. Uh, doesn't mean we won't uh, visit them again in another format. And actually, we probably will. Right. So in the pursuit of what to drink instead of drinking what you can't get, yeah, uh, we've continued that. Yeah. And um, we it's, thought we'd focus on Blanton's. Yeah. So we've been through Blanton's. We we know right. the history created yeah. for the Japanese market, blah, blah, blah. So you can go back and listen to those shorts that we did. We did one on Blanton's itself and then all the Japanese Blanton's that we thought we weren't ever going to taste and we did. So I'm going to focus on just a very brief, like who owns it because, you know, it's confusing and then uh, sort of why it became so scarce. And then we're going to taste what we have tonight, which I will tell you at the end of this this is from the website abvnetwork.com oh yeah as we've previously <laughs> I don't know that <laughs> no i don't either <laughs> as we've stated here on this podcast buffalo trace distillery owns blanton's but not quite because it's actually sazerac who owns buffalo trace but sazerac doesn't really own blanton's either a company called age international was formed in 1983 and purchased the ancient age brand and the then named george t stag distillery in 1992 age international sold out to the japanese group takara holdings which then immediately sold the distillery to sazerac but retained all of their brand trademarks, including Blanton's. So, Sazerac has sale and distribution rights for Blanton's in the United States, but only has a producer's contract with Takara to make it. Mm. So, with that background out of the way, why is it so hard to find? Well, it's likely a number of the factors occurring simultaneously, some of the things that we just talked about. Number one, just the sheer demand outstripping the amount that can be produced. Number two, the fact that it's a single barrel, which means that a substandard barrel can't be mixed with other barrels to smooth out the flavor profile like what would happen with a non-single barrel bourbon, so there are fewer barrels that can be bottled. Number three, the allocation of it in some areas of the country more than others, which causes regional scarcity and flippers start hoarding bottles to sell on the secondary market. And number four, in the past two years, the pandemic has exacerbated all of the aforementioned reasons. So, okay, you can't get plans, or when you can, it's at a price that you're not willing to pay. So what can you get? Well, tonight we're going to recommend trying. Wait. Oh. Before you tell, I found a list of what the internet said we should try too. Okay. So before we tell you the one we chose, sorry, Scott, I knew what you ruined the reveal until I set you up with a little bit more. <laughs> okay. So these are ones that if you can't find Blanton's, you should try them. And these are ones that Scott and I have talked about. So he's going to be surprised when he hears on the list. Okay. 
Number one. No. <laughs> Number one. Evan Williams single barrel bourbon. Right. From Heaven Hill. It's uh, about 86 proof, seven to eight years age. It's one of my favorite drinkers if, when I'm looking for something a little bit lower proof. Mm-hmm. It's very, very good. Number two. Jim Beam single barrel, 108. Mm-hmm. Um, Why it's like Blanton. It has a lot of brighter and vibrant dried apple, oranges, licorice, fennel, but also brings more oak spice and nuts. Number three. Uh, Elijah Craig single barrel bourbon. Mm-hmm. Okay, some of them. Not all of them. Okay. There's some um, that they said they believe that there's a licorice, fennel, apple, clove type of a profile on Blanton's. Interesting. Number four. Four Roses Single Barrel. Scott and I have talked about that as well. We've thought about using that for Blanton's, but we've already featured it, and we wanted to do something different. Number five. They chose the one that we have here today. Did they? I'm not. I'm going to skip over it, okay. though. Okay. And they also had like an Elmer T. Lee with their joke. They're busting on that because that, that was on the internet, too. Just use Elmer T. Lee to replace Blanton's. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Right. Back when it was $59, that would have been a great idea. So the one that we chose, Scott, was... Russell's Reserve Single Barrel Bourbon. Yes. And the reason why we chose it, and not some of those others, is because we've either really talked about them or we've actually featured them on the podcast before, and we wanted to try something that we hadn't tried before. We picked this because it was a single barrel. The mash bill is very similar, and because you can get it, right? Because this episode's all about scarcity, not necessarily about pricing. Blanton's you can't find anywhere. Russell's Reserve Single Barrel, you can find pretty much anywhere, and they do a lot of store barrel picks. Yeah, last night we drove out to the closest liquor store to the Whiskey Tangent Studios. Yes. And found it. Yeah. I mean, we were ready to go to, we had three other ones plotted. We walked into the closest one and said, let's hit this one first. And boom, there it was. Yeah. They had five bottles. Yeah, amazing. Just sitting there. There wasn't a crowd. Nobody was running over me. They weren't behind the counter. It wasn't priced to $100. It right. was just sitting there. A very nice product. And, and tell us about it now. Yeah. So uh, the, this is the description from their website. Reserved for all is our promise to bring all people together. Russell's Reserve is crafted by a family, named after a family, and now is inviting everyone to become part of the Bourbon family. It's a statement that we won't tolerate exclusivity and aim to leave the world a better place than when we arrived. So sit back, take a sip, and welcome to the family. Russell's Reserve Single Barrel Bourbon is crafted in the birthplace of bourbon with techniques dating back to pre-prohibition and is matured in the deepest number four alligator char barrels. Individually bottled at 110 proof and non-chill filtered to guarantee maximum flavor, each barrel has its own personality yet still captures our signature toffee and vanilla tones. Rich oaky notes meet an intense spiciness which creates a robust taste that is best experienced right out of the bottle. Its mash bill is 75% corn, 13% rye, 12% malted barley, which is basically what we can determine that the Buffalo Trace mash bill number two is that Blanton's uses. Very similar. It's like it could be 12 instead of 13, but it's like right there. Right. Uh, the age, there's no age statement, but their barrels are usually eight to 10 years, according to Breaking Bourbon. The distiller, of course, is Wild Turkey Distillery, right. Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. We featured the Russell's 10 year on our episode 13. The price is about $55 to $60. We got it, as Ed said, for $55. Bucks. Yep, which is right where Blanton should be. Blanton should be $55. So unlike the Kentucky Owl last week, which we didn't have with us, we do have a Blanton's with us. So we're going to taste them side by side, which we uh, didn't think we'd have a chance to do. But I forgot that I did have a little Blanton's. If you listen to our original Blanton Quick Taste from two years ago, this is the same bottle. If you listen to the episode with Joey, when he brought his Blantons onto the show, I brought this out to be like our opener. So this particular one, it's, it's going to die tonight. 
<laughs> I don't think the Blanton should be second, right? Or do, uh, I don't know. What I do don't you know. Think? Blanton's first. Blanton's first, and then we'll have to see if the Russell holds its own, right? Right. Okay. Okay. That's so cool. let's smell it. All right. I'm gonna swirl. Mm-hmm. Neat glasses, of course. You're gonna get sick of us saying that every time. No, it, you shouldn't. We're it's contractually we're obligated. <laughs> and we love it. Stop saying that. We no, love no, it. No, we do love it. Okay. What are you getting? Ooh, it's it's a grainy. Yeah, I definitely get some apple. It's not as traditional bourbon as you would think for the mashable, yeah. but because he said licorice, and I'm looking at licorice right now. Licorice, wow. I mean, I can see apple. He did say licorice on the taste, not the smell. So, oh, well, right. All right, let's taste it. We've had right, we've had this before. We've we had don't, we don't we don't have to go through it. Hmm, that's really nice. So I remember this one being uh, like um, spicy as yeah. opposed to most of the Blantons that I had previously. Right, and it is, but uh, oaky. Yep. Surprising. Sometimes you think about Blanton and you've had it and you remember it being good and then you don't have it for a while because you can't. Right. And then uh, you come back to it. And I, I have this problem, of course, with Elijah Craig, as Ed knows. I, I, I just kind of like I don't never really find it that distinctive. But this is a wonderful bourbon. Yeah. And the overt hatred online, it really cracks me up. People are so obnoxious with their opinions about what tastes good and what doesn't. I mean, I'll have people that are like, Eagle Rare is a pour out for me. <laughs> like, you really would pour Eagle Rare down the drain? I mean, that's ridiculous. Yeah. Or they'll be like, Blanton's, I wouldn't use it to like clean my boots or something. I mean, please. I find it to be delicious. But, and this is a lesson that I've been preaching for years now, I don't like it at $100. I will find something else to drink. And hopefully today, that other thing to drink will be Russell's Reserve. So it tastes, it tastes hot to me. So is it the heat of the uh, alcohol or is it... Um, the spice. Is it the spice of it? Because it's only 93 proof. It's only 93 proof. And it's really, if you think about it, it's not really burning your chest that Mm-mm. much. It's kind of in your mouth. It's not. It, it's it, in your mouth and throat a little bit. Yeah, it stings the inside of your mouth. So yeah. that's got to be all spice. I do taste a little bit of like anise, but mostly char and spice. Right. Well, let's check out the, the Russell's. Mm. A little swirly. Yeah. Oh, the nose is not quite as potent, I think, as this particular blends. Yeah, this has a sweeter nose. Can you identify what you're smelling? Because mm. I'm having trouble I'm deciphering not, right yeah. now. Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, I got pe- apple again. I'll be yeah, honest. With you. I was going to say pear. Yeah. Okay. Right, yeah. yeah. Okay. It could be pear. Yeah. I got a sweet fruit and not a dark fruit either. No, no, it's not. I mean, just a little bit of oak and char on it. It's not well, as it's, oaky it's, as in, it's an alligator char, right? So it is supposed to be an alligator char. Which I yeah. really think we all think it should be called the dragon char. The dragon char. Well, that's <laughs> the number five char. Right, the dragon char exists. <laughs> you getting anything else on the nose? I mean, I don't want to say vanilla and oak again. Like it's like I was trying to find something deeper. Okay, I did get something like um, like tobacco. Maybe could it be licorice on the end? Ooh, there's a little licorice there too. Could it be? Could there that is. be the tobacco smell? Maybe. But it's a little more earthy than that. Yeah, okay. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll right. try it. All right. Now we can try it. Ooh. Ooh. Ooh, licorice now on the mm-hmm. finish. Holy damn. A lot of licorice on the finish. Or anise, whatever you want to call it. I <laughs> uh, mean, wow, that's wow. really nice. It, it did a wave over my tongue. Wait, yeah. let me try that again. It was sweet, clove, anise. Wow, and it fades really nicely. Yeah. It's sweet, uh, vanilla, the light fruits again, like a pear again. Wow, it's a nice finish. So I just went back to the Blantons right away. Yeah. I swallowed the Russells, took a quick sip of water, and then took a big sip of Blantons. Ooh. The Russells is more complex. And actually, for a minute, I thought I just did a shot of, of green spot. Because <laughs> oh. when I hit the Blantons, all I tasted at first was sweet green apple. Oh, interesting. And okay. then yeah, try to hit, yeah, hit it real me, quick right let me now. Try that. 
Oh, yeah. Wow. Right? Yeah. Apples all over like your... Like sliced open a green apple. Yeah, seriously. So <laughs> they're both really good, and there's definitely similarities in the finish between the two of them. I'm not feeling cheated by drinking the Russell's Reserve. Not at and all. And I think that's the point that we're trying to make here. To me, the Russell's is a bit smoother in the beginning yeah. of it. The Blanton's, this particular one, hits you very hard with the spice, and it's all spice mm-hmm. all the time. Where the Russell's kind of hits you with its sweet, and it does a wave, and then it hits a crescendo of spice that tapers off into more sweetness, and then a little bit of like leathery, yeah. oaky char. Well, I just got confused and wasn't sure which is which, and I drank both of them, and <sighs> it was really hard for me to figure out which is which. Really? So they're that similar. Yeah. I had some Russell sitting on one cube, and I think that's what you want to try right now. So I'm going to put some water in. Proof it down, Scott, yep. to about 93, okay? Oh, I see what you're saying. Instead of your normal five drops, do 10 drops of water in there. Okay. And um, I'm going to do that over here, and then we're going to figure out what it tastes like if it's proof the exact same mm. as Latin. Ooh, so nice. It kind of um, smoothed out some of that extra char that I was getting. Right. Mm, I'm getting more now, cinnamon and, and clove, definitely. And now try your Blanton's. All right. Really similar now, man. Really similar. Really similar. If this was a blind tasting Seriously. and a whiskey madness, I'm we t- wouldn't be able to tell which one is right now, You get the Russell Reserve single barrel, and you drop in about 10 generous drops of yeah. distilled water, and you'll be hard-pressed to tell the difference between Blanton's and Russell Reserve single barrel. And so that's your tip for today. Yeah. <laughs> If you're looking to battle the scarcity of Blanton's and you want to give this a try, uh, hopefully we're not going to start a run on Russell Reserves Got in the country. Re- are we part of the problem? <laughs> Did we just create social media scarcity? But honestly, am I out of line saying wild turkey might be the most underrated distillery? No, I was just going to say it's sometimes it's sort of the forgotten brand. And I think that's because a lot of people don't know Russell's is wild turkey. Because uh, mm. Russell's has a ton of expressions, and it, the only way it says wild turkey is like in the small print. Mm-hmm. Their base expression has a bad reputation, just the regular wild turkey, yeah. even though the wild turkey 101, uh, the, the rye and the bourbon, and their um, rare breeds are actually quite good. And very well respected. But I don't think you're out of line saying what yeah. you said. No. All right. So do you want to do the tasting notes? Yeah. yeah. What are we supposed to be tasting? Okay. So on the nose, uh, big oak and rich caramel with graham cracker sweetness with a light smokiness accented by cigar box and a hint of leather. There you go. Tobacco. Oh oh, my God. The cigar box. Yeah. That kind of what it smelled like. I just couldn't get the words to it. Right. I don't smoke, but I I smoked a long time ago. Uh, Yeah. But smelling a fresh pack of cigarettes is like opening a can of coffee. And that's different than the cigar box, which has a different flavor of tobacco. Yeah. It's sort of deeper. And I like both those smells, even though I wasn't a smoker. Right. Right. On the palate, a vigorous mix of rye spice and charred oak combined with sweet caramel chews, mm. leather, tobacco, and toffee further mingle in. All right. They're not saying the apple that I'm getting, but that's all they're, right. They're not, actually. Um, but again, every single barrel's a little bit different. So you kind of have to take these with a grain of salt. Uh, finish. Yeah. Tapering rye spice meets a dark fruit, which we did not taste in this one. Tobacco and leather, which we did. We did. Aged oak, yes. Caramel, a mm, little lighter than that. Graham cracker and toffee carry over from the palate, but fade into the background. The intensity of the spice lingers against this array of flavors, making for a long and excellent finish. Yeah. Yes. Right. So I'm really pleased with the Russell's Reserve single barrel. Yeah. And 
this is why we love our job, you know, our non-job <laughs> our job. non-job, yeah. Because it's going to make me feel a little better. Like if six months from now, I, I haven't been able to find a Blanton's for a price I want to pay and I, I want that experience, I now know to buy a Russell's or a Four Roses. Oh, yeah. Single barrel, which is 100 proof. Any of the ones that Ed mentioned earlier. Yeah, I mean, the Evan Williams single barrel is actually very flavorful and a surprise. And it's, once again, like around $31 or something. Yeah, yeah. Really good. So, all right. So, uh, that's the end of part two. Uh, Stay tuned for part three, wherein we'll talk about who broke the system and why can't we fix it. We can. Just listen to us. Right. And the the first step is go out and buy Russell Reserve (laughs) instead of spending $100 for Blanton. Sure. All right. So, for the Whiskey Tangent Podcast, I'm Ed. I'm Scott. Tune in next week when we'll get to the bottom of the solution. (laughs) All right. Later. Later. Cheers. Cheers.